a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Yes, the battle for your mind is a real thing. And on this show, I won't tell you what to think, but I will invite you to think more clearly and more independently about the world around us. So if you're a uh, longtime wrong thinker or somewhat uh, freedom curious, just checking it out for the first time, I'm encouraging you to come find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers. And I'm encouraging you to claim your heritage as a free individual. It's a lot of fun. We've got some great things to share with you today. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. You know, yesterday I spent a pretty fair amount of time talking about the fourth-turning model of cycles of history. And I've got an excellent follow-up column that, uh, that a friend sent after listening to the show yesterday. I want to thank Ruben for passing this on to me because this is from Jim Quinn. You heard me mention him. And he has been an excellent economist, analyst, looking at current events. Now, I'll tell you, Jim takes a pretty, pretty hard view of a lot of these things. In other words, he's not trying to spin it for the, you know, the here's the silver lining and here's the good news of what's going on. He flat will tell you, you know, this is this is where it's coming off the rails. But he also does a wonderful job of holding it up against that uh, template of how these turnings shake out. I thought you might appreciate this one. Because it's it's so because it has proven so essential to consolidating and maintaining power over the masses. Jim Quinn is warning us that the war on COVID will never end. And I don't think that's such a radical thing to say, by the way. I mean, it's not, it's not like, oh, wow, well, that's just, that's what crazy, you know, conspiracy freaks are going to be thinking. No, you can, you can look at the track record of the last uh, year and a half, and it seems pretty clear that every time normal or getting back to normal is, is offered as incentive, this is why we all need to mask up, this is why we all need to uh, flatten the curve, here's why we need to get the shot, the goalpost moves every single time. And what we've learned is that, uh, you know, by invoking public health emergency, that's the cheat code with which people in authority believe they can safely set aside any limits on their power. And it's worked extremely well. It's worked so much better than it should have. That's, that's the only really discouraging part. But let's start with <clears throat> let's start with Jim Quinn. He uh, blogs on the burningplatform.com. And he actually starts with a scripture. This is from Galatians chapter 6. Be not deceived. Sorry, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. Well, the one who sows to please the spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. 
Let us not become weary in doing good for all, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Okay, so there's some encouragement there. Now, this is going to seem like a weird juxtaposition. Then he follows up <laughs> with, uh, with a quote from George Carlin. What? From the Bible to George Carlin? Listen to what Carlin has to say. George Carlin says, I have certain rules I live by. My first rule, I don't believe anything the government tells me. Sooner or later, the people in this country are going to realize the government does not give a dang about them. Sorry, I'm editing a little bit here. The government doesn't care about you or your children or your rights or your welfare or your safety. It simply doesn't give a flying you-know-what about you. It's interested in its own power. That's the only thing keeping it and expanding it wherever possible. Now, in a previous article, Jim Quinn had written, it was called Cascade of Consequences. He says, I attempted to make the case the ruthless billionaire oligarchs and their bought-off lackey whores in government, media, academia, corporations, the military-industrial complex, sick care industry, and Federal Reserve have used this engineered COVID pandemia to further consolidate and expand their wealth, power, and control over a frightened, willfully ignorant, compliant populace. Did I mention that Jim Quinn doesn't mince words? Okay, just thought I would double-check that. He says, in the month since that article... The powers that be have ramped up the fear, increased their coercive mandates, reinstated mask mandates, and instituted vaccine passports in liberal bastion cities across America. Now, Quinn says, I see these ham-handed authoritarian dictates as a sign of weakness and their false narrative falling apart. He says, a sense of desperation wafts from the halls of power in D.C., Corporate executive suites, the left-wing media outlets on the coasts who've overplayed their tyrannical hand. Yeah, they're all feeling it. Resistance is building among an irate minority of critical thinking individuals who follow George Carlin's first rule. Don't trust anything the government is telling you. Now, he says the narrative is unraveling as everything they have avowed to be true is revealed to be false. No matter how many truth-tellers Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube censor, deplatform, and suppress, there are many more stepping up and destroying their mendacious, provably false plotline. Despite half the country indoctrinated by the government education system to feel rather than think, still shuddering in fear despite being double-jabbed, voluntarily locked down, and masked, he says the elite, the global elite game plan is self-destructing under the weight of an avalanche of deceptions. Despite an all-out authoritarian fear campaign to mandate these unproven, dangerous gene therapies disguised as vaccines, orchestrated by our corrupt political class, bought-off medical industry, big tech censorship media outlets, woke mega corporations, cowardly universities, and left-wing fake news propaganda outlets. More than 40% of the population is resisting this tyrannical medical apartheid. Now, this past week, he says, had a surreal quality as false narrative after false narrative was annihilated by unequivocal facts presented by a minority of truth-seeking bloggers. This includes uncaptured doctors like Robert Malone, Pierre Corey, Martin Koldorf, and a few remaining real journalists like Glenn Greenwald, Tucker Carlson, Alex Berenson, and Joe Rogan. The mainstream media and their social media co-conspirators, he says, 
are nothing but highly compensated mouthpieces for the deep state, big pharma, and billionaire oligarchs calling the shots. Jim Quinn says the resistance is coming from alternative media websites, independent bloggers, and individuals seeking the truth. Online communities of like-minded individuals are doing the are the modern-day committees of correspondence, if you will, as we head towards an inevitable conflict. Now, he doesn't mince words here either. He says a revolution is in the offing, and those trapped in their own cognitive dissonance trance with a dash of normalcy bias are going to be shocked out of their self-induced stupor by the suddenness and extreme violence of the pushback set in motion by the power elite. Now, he says these global sociopath tyrants actually believe they can dictate and control the actions of 7 billion human beings through their capture of politicians, the military, universities, corporations, the banking system, the media, and now the medical industrial complex. He says the maniacal determination of controlling the levers of power behind the scenes to coerce these experimental gene therapies upon the populations of the developed world should make any critical thinking person pause and ask why. Now, Jim Quinn reminds us this flu has a 99.7% survival rate and a fatality rate less than the current annual flu, less than the annual flu, rather, for those under 21. But universities are mandating vaccination to attend their $60,000 per year woke indoctrination centers to get a degree in gender fluidity studies. Meanwhile, with vaccination rates of 98% on campuses, cases from the worthless uh, recalled PCR test are surging. Big pharma captured vax cheerleaders in the medical and media industry do not allow the facts to interfere with their scripted narrative. Their solution, vax harder and blame those who choose to let their immune systems do their job for the surge in cases. And he says, why not go with the big lie? It's worked so well thus far. Now, I'm going to come back to this on the other side of the break. And again, there's Jim, Jim Quinn is one who just doesn't uh, sugarcoat anything that he's saying. So don't get too caught up in the fact, well, boy, he sounds angry. Therefore, none of this could be true. I think he's possibly one of the most accurate commentators out there. But yeah, he he does not go with sugarcoating anything. Which, again, to me, is one of the strengths of what he does. Stick around. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Hey, I'd like to encourage you, please check out the show notes that I publish each day that I do this program. You'll find them at thebrianhydeshow.com. That's pretty simple, right? So in today's show notes, I'm including an essay here from Jim Quinn, writing on theburningplatform.com. And his take is, hey, the COVID war or this war on COVID, rather, will never end. And I know that sounds pessimistic to some people, like, well, gee, thanks a lot. We were hoping that everything would get back to normal. It's been very hard for me to accept this. I mean, it has really been difficult for me to to come to terms with the idea that we're not going back to normal. But I believe this is true. 
And so that leaves us the choice, okay, so what are we going to do? How will we adapt if what we thought was normal and what was comfortable is no longer within reach? And maybe we'll be out of reach for, you know, the foreseeable future, possibly, you know, for the rest of our lives. Well, I'm not going to wilt like a freshly picked flower because, you know, things aren't going my way. In fact, if I can just get a little philosophical here for just, just a second. I think it's very possible that uh, we are standing at a crossroads that uh, that none of us really would have chosen to stand at, but nonetheless, we're there. It's, this, is a, this is historic. There are things going on right now that uh, I'm sure the history books, people are going to read the history books someday and just be like, wow. How did they not see, you know, where this was all headed? But I think it's an honor that you and I have some role to play in whatever it is that's shaking out. And again, I don't think any of us would have chosen this. Things have been tough for the last year and a half. Mentally, I think we all feel the weight. We wonder, am I up to, you know, this challenge ahead of us? I, and I'm not trying to be a downer here, but it's going to get tougher. I believe it really will. So rather than sitting there wringing my hands, oh, what can I do? What can I do? Government, help me. I'm just carefully and consistently doing everything I can to create things that will will be worthwhile, that will bolster my self-reliance, that will help me to stand on my own feet. But most importantly, I am looking for the opportunities to make whatever difference I was born to make. And I'm telling you this not because I'm so important that, yes, I'm going to make a difference. You were born to make a difference as well. And I mean a difference that only you can make. So rather than shrink from it and just wish for what was, and man, I wish things could go back to the way that they were. It's uh, as, as your friends in the military would tell you, it's time to embrace the suck and just you move forward through it. But if you can move forward through it with the understanding that you have purpose, there's something you can do. There's some way that you will improve the world that's yours alone. It makes it a lot easier. In fact, it almost makes it somewhat of an adventure. How's that for weird? Back to Jim Quinn's column. The war on COVID will never end. He says, truthfully, cases peaked in early January at 260,000 cases per day. Now, we've had, what, nine months <laughs> or eight months since then to, to try and, and uh, make sense of what's happening. But he says, miraculously, with virtually no one vaccinated at that time, daily cases fell by 60% in the next month to just 110,000 per day. By early March, with just a 10% national vaccination rate, daily cases fell by another 40%, down to 64,000, down 75% from the January peak. His point is the vaccine had absolutely nothing to do with this decline in cases. And by early summer, this pandemic had lost its mojo. The threat of a return to normal was unthinkable to the power elite. Now, their master plan called for the vaccination of all. But less than 50% of the adult population had succumbed to the fear propaganda campaign. So it was time for Biden and his controllers to turn up the heat on corporations, hospitals, and universities to enforce vaccine mandates by either bribing them with federal funds or threatening to withhold federal funds. 
It works the same. Money talks, and this unconstitutional demand that employees and students inject themselves with an untested chemical concoction to retain their jobs or get an education is legally, morally, and medically unethical, violating the Nuremberg Code. By the way, do you know what the Nuremberg Code says? This is just, you know, for sake of clarity. The Nuremberg Code states informed consent is absolutely essential. It also states qualified researchers use appropriate research designs. It requires favorable risk-benefit ratios, and the participant must be free to stop at any time. Now, Jim Quinn's take is, hey, they they invented their new variant, Delta, and rolled out our present-day Mengele, mass murderer Anthony Fauci, to lie, obfuscate, and instill fear in his feeble-minded worshippers. Day after day, Fauci appeared on the fake news networks promoting his new variant, which many renowned doctors, including one of the inventors of the mRNA vaccines, Dr. Robert Malone, theorize has been created and made more infectious by the vaccines. Are they that diabolical or just plain stupid? Natural immunity through infection has proven to be 20 times as effective as the vaccines. Now, in this case, Jim Quinn says with a huge surge in testing, they were able to generate an increase in cases, but with 50% less hospitalizations and deaths than when cases were at the same level in January. And now the cases have peaked on the same timeline as India and UK experienced in June and July. He says this explains the desperate nature of their actions. As their window of opportunity is closing and their fear narrative unravels, there are millions of people beginning to make a stand against the government and employer authoritarian mandates. Now, this past week has not been a good one for the purveyors of pandemia, as their storyline collapses under the weight of their duplicity. The entire case for vaccinations, not the revisionist history case being made today, was that they were 96% effective in keeping you from contracting the COVID virus. Yeah, in January, that's what we were told by the experts like Fauci and Walensky. They didn't tout the vaccines as a way to reduce the symptoms when you caught it after being vaccinated. The surge in cases was declared to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated in the shame campaign peddled by the fake news media and government apparatchiks spouting provable falsities. And it seems Israel has become ground zero in destroying the globalist narrative. As the first country to mass vaccinate with over 84% fully vaccinated, how could 86% of all the cases in July be among the vaxxed if the vaccinations work? And the tripe about uh, the cases not being as severe has been destroyed as the vaxxed are being hospitalized and they are dying too. Whatever you see the MSM or the mainstream media using the term rare, you can be sure they're lying. Now, there's a, there are charts that he uses to back this up and they will show you. Israel's confirmed cases from July 4th to July 31st. Percentage of the population fully vaccinated, 84.4%. They go through the various age groups, but look, I'm not trying to shake your faith in the vaccine if you've had it, but can we at least admit something isn't adding up here? And it really was sold as, well, this is going to be 96% effective. You know, this is back in early in the year when the vaccine was still pretty new. It doesn't look like it shook out that way. And we haven't even talked about uh, ivermectin or some of the other, you know, uh, therapeutic ways of approaching COVID when somebody gets it. 
So I've got to pump the brakes here. We're coming up on our break here. We'll come back to Jim Quinn's essay. Again, you can read this in its entirety in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. And listen, while you're in those show notes, can I just suggest, take a moment, click on lifesavingfood.com. This is a great time to just bolster your food storage program. I don't know what's coming down the pike, but I know I'm going to need food. Food with a 25-year shelf life, now that would be a real blessing, especially, you know, we're talking good, easy to to, to prepare food. Just add water. Check it out lifesavingfood.com. Use the coupon code HIDE when you check out and save 10% on your purchase. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Sharing with you this article from Jim Quinn. This was originally published on theburningplatform.com. The war on COVID will never end. Now, I know this is going to sound like bad news to some people, but uh, this it's not bad news if it's simply looking at the reality of what is and, you know, assessing it for yourself and then deciding, okay, now I can see what uh, what things really are and decide for myself what's the best way forward. The bad news would be, well... Here's the way it is, and you have no choice but to do as you're told. You know that's not true. You always have a choice. Jim Quinn says, A critical thinking person may wonder which country on this chart is fully vaxxed and which country is has very few vaxxed but distributed ivermectin in mass quantities. And he shows, uh, he has a chart here. Um, I believe this is from, I'm trying to see, I, the, the fine print is very, very small. Anyway, he says the powers that be don't want people to see this chart because if it's posted on Facebook or Twitter, the odds of a permanent ban are high. In other words, you post that and it will get you not just a timeout, but you'll be you'll be deplatformed because facts and truth are treason in an empire of lies. He says, if you really want to make a vax proponent's head explode, bring up the country that did the opposite of the Soros, Gates, Schwab, authoritarian lockdown formula. That would be the black sheep, Sweden. Remember, they never locked down. They never mandated masks. They never closed their schools. They never closed their businesses. They didn't push vaccines on those who choose not to vaccinate. Cases in Israel with vac- with mask mandates and vaccine passports are 1,191% higher than Sweden, where no one is wearing masks and there are no vaccine passports. How inconvenient to the establishment narrative. Since they can't deny these facts, they just don't allow Sweden or India to be discussed. Silence is complicity. And then you have the Joe Rogan saga, which has again shattered their plot line of the Covidian cultists. Rogan had infuriated them previously by telling his young audience they don't need to be vaccinated. Their survival rate is 99.9975%. The cost-benefit analysis clearly comes down on the side of not getting vaxxed. And the 54-year-old unvaxxed Rogan caught COVID and treated himself with monoclonal antibodies, ivermectin, Z-Pak, prednisone, and NAD drip, and a vitamin D drip. He fully recovered in three days. Now, this was after a full court press of misinformation from the FDA, big pharma media whores, and Silicon Valley censorship police about ivermectin being a dangerous cow and horse medicine. 
despite this safe, life-saving drug being used by humans for decades and winning a Nobel Prize in medicine for its inventor in 2015, it had to be discredited in order to keep the vaccine train chugging along. 63 studies proving its efficacy in drastically reducing the impact of COVID had to be demeaned and derided. In other words, when you see this level of vitriol, you know the opposite must be true. So time to buy as much ivermectin as you can. Spoke with a friend the other day telling me about his brother getting COVID. Took ivermectin. This was with a doctor's prescription. The doctor prescribed him ivermectin. Within 24 hours, his cough was gone and he felt almost 100% better. Now, I know that's anecdotal. Well, it's not going to work for everybody. No, it won't work for everybody. But it appears to be working for enough people. It just makes you wonder, why would they suppress this or push back? And go, well, you can't do this. This is not right. I mean, I have my own ideas, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I've got this figured out. One thing that I have to wonder about is how much money is at stake for the creators of these vaccines? Because it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like your auto insurance. Eric Peters always refers to the insurance mafia. You're right. You're going to have this reckoning with the insurance mafia. You have to buy their product. It's the law. You get caught driving without having their product while you're in big trouble. That's one of the great things about to being in bed with government. You know, certain industries seem to do really, really well when the policy and the laws favor whatever it is they happen to be offering. Why would that not be true for vaccine makers? Or are we supposed to believe, you know, that, well, no, really, they're just they're just philanthropic uh, organizations and uh, people who deeply love humanity and are just trying to do the right thing by their fellow citizens and and just, you know, making the world a better place. No, I don't think so. That doesn't mean they're, you know, diabolical, you know, 007, you know, arch nemesis kind of people either. They're not like some super villain. But let's let's not rule out human nature, which is, hey, there's a chance to make some money on this. Let's uh, let's make money. As Jim Quinn points out, the only thing that infuriates a Vax disciple more than Sweden or Joe Rogan is the name Ron DeSantis. He continuously pushed back on the covid fear narrative, telling Fauci and Biden to shove their mandate and masking of children with no danger from covid. They were cheering on the surge in cases, praying for a mass casualty event in Florida to discredit DeSantis, as he appears to be the frontrunner in the 2024 presidential race against cackling Kamala. Oops. But it seems the cases in Florida are crashing, down almost 50% in three weeks. There goes the death Santis memes on Twitter. The lefty control freaks are in a full frothing at the mouth, frenzy of hate, Reminiscent of Orwell's two minutes hate in which they vent their existential anguish and personal hatreds toward their politically expedient enemies, the unvaxxed. Meanwhile, in the leftist bastions of Oregon and Hawaii, the high vaccination rates and mandatory masking cases are soaring to all time highs. And you don't hear that from reporters like Maddow or Acosta. Now universities are back in session with 95% or more of their campuses vaccinated, but the cases are exploding, higher than last year at the same time. How could that be if vaccines work? Now, I'm sorry if this is causing you some discomfort, but these are questions that really need to be asked. Jim Quinn says the vax Nazis are losing the high ground rapidly. 
He says the vaccines don't keep you from contracting COVID. They don't keep you from spreading COVID. They don't reduce the viral load if you get COVID. They don't keep you from being hospitalized from COVID. They don't even ensure you will not die from COVID. As the narrative police like to say, it is rare that a vaxxed person dies from COVID or the vaccine. It is rare to have the adverse reaction to the jab. Of course, there have been more deaths and adverse reactions to these vaccines in eight months than all vaccines combined in the last 40 years. So there is that. Oh, and if you want to do something interesting, Google to see what is the largest penalty ever paid for criminal wrongdoing. I won't tell you the answer, but uh, it may surprise you to learn. Largest criminal penalty ever paid for criminal wrongdoing. Largest monetary penalty. Very interesting stuff. Jim Quinn says, last I checked, it was rare to die from COVID, unless you're really old or already sick with some other fatal ailment. Only 6% of all the COVID deaths were from COVID alone. Now, he says, I would classify 40,000 deaths in a population of 330 million to be pretty rare and by any reasonable assessment should not have involved or invoked a planetary lockdown and mass vaccination of billions of people. I know my friend Steve, who crunches numbers for a living, will probably, uh, you know, take exception with this. But I'm I'm grateful for that because I don't know if I agree with with Quinn's numbers. It's only 40,000. I do believe that there is some selective reporting of numbers and fudging of the numbers. Did this person die with COVID? Well, yes, the COVID virus was present in their system. Okay, then that's what we're going to list it at. Uh, he was uh, he crashed his motorcycle. It's okay. He died with COVID. We'll count it as a COVID death. Oh, you think I'm joking? No, that's that's stuff that's actually been done. It's as if someone wants to inflate the numbers. I don't know to keep people in fear, to keep people, you know, un unbalanced and afraid, not knowing how bad is the disease. As Jim Quinn points out, this war on COVID is no different than our previous war on poverty or drugs or terrorism. All they do is give government more power over our lives, restrict our freedoms, strip our liberties, and abscond with more of our hard-earned dollars. As Orwell foresaw, these wars are never meant to be won, just as Big Pharma never wants to cure any disease. So he says this war on COVID will never end. The myriad of Greek letters exist that once they milked Delta dry, there will be others. In fact, we're already being prepped for the dreaded, double, contagious, most dangerous moo variant. So we're approaching the point of no return. And if we don't resist now, his point is we may not get another chance. We maybe should consider what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said and how we burned in the camps later, thinking, What would things have been like if every security operative, when he went out at night to make an arrest, had been uncertain whether he would return alive and had to say goodbye to his family? Yeah, if you haven't been reading the Gulag Archipelago, I think you would find uh, some pretty good food for thought there. At the very least, you would recognize tyranny much more effectively. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
All right, welcome back to the show. Our program brought to you in part by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. If you are purchasing a home anywhere in the state of Utah, whether you need a VA loan, a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, maybe just want to refinance your existing mortgage, I want you to contact the Heather Turner team in St. George, Utah. You can call them at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. And you'll want to know that Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Heather's the one you want on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence. You know, like in the hottest real estate market that most any of us can remember. That's the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. There's a link in the show notes. It's an email link where you can contact her directly. So I'm, I'm going to leave the uh, Jim Quinn article. You can check this out for yourself. It is linked in the show notes at the Um, I, I got to say, Jim, Jim definitely, you know, he, he takes the pretty much the, the harsh view on this and says, you know, there's, there's nothing really good coming from, uh, from this power grab. He says, this is consistent with fourth turning dynamics. We have a series of crises that are unfolding in front of us right now. And as much as I want to believe it's all going to settle down and it's all going to go back to, you know, some degree of normal in my heart, I know that's not the case. So I don't tell you that to dishearten you or make you feel like it's all hopeless. We simply have to adjust to the reality that things, uh, the season of plentiful, you know, peaceful, easy life is, is over. And that doesn't mean you can't be happy or that you can't be fulfilled, you know, in, in whatever difficulties we happen to be going through. These are historical cycles. They've happened before. That's the good news. They've happened before, they're survivable, but the kind of character that we possess as we go through them has more of an impact than you would think. If we have low character, if all we're doing is just kind of operating from, you know, our, our lizard mind, you know, fight or flight, yeah, that's, that's not a good thing. You're going to see people overreact and do things that, that aren't helpful. If we are thinking and acting consciously, doing whatever we can within our own little circle of influence to, to uh, you know, shore ourselves up against, you know, a time of need or a time of, of uh, you know, whatever. I think that's where the solution is going to be found. But it's, it starts close to where you're standing. Let me just be really blunt. Spend less time obsessing about this political personality or that personality I know people are like, if we can just hold on till the midterm elections, we're going to get this thing all straightened out. I don't think that's the case. I don't think the midterm elections are going to provide the solutions that some people are hoping for. Now, I'm not telling you disconnect from everything politically, but I'm going to tell you it's worth your time to evaluate how much time, effort, and moral energy you're devoting to political things. Because there are other aspects of life where you can be very effective. Politics is just, it's, it still comes down to, it's a contest to see who gets to tell the other what to do. It's that simple. That seems like kind of a loser's game. Don't play that game. All right, so Labor Day has come and gone. I just have a couple quick things here I wanted to share with you. Two columns that, uh, that I wanted to uh, include in the show notes for your consideration. One of them is an article from... Anthony Gill, is it time to rethink Labor Day? 
And this gives some nice historical perspective. I, I mean, hey, I love a three-day weekend, right? I'm not going to turn down that chance to celebrate. But I didn't realize that Labor Day first was celebrated nationally in 1882 and came into existence in the era of rapid industrialization and urbanization. And specifically, the holiday was designed to herald and thank the working man, and by the mid-20th century, the working woman, with parades and union rallies and so forth. Now, of course, it also came with a little bit of a tinge of revolutionary politics. I mean, labor organization, urban uprisings dating back to the mid-19th century in Europe. Now, this was also behind Labor Day. And, of course, the Soviet Revolution of 1917, although occurring in a country that was still largely agrarian, championed the vision of the Stakhanovite factory worker. Class warfare was in the air, and the future seemed to belong to the industrial laborer. So you fast forward to the early 21st century, and, you know, there's some great breakdown here of labor statistics. Workers in industrial manufacturing still exist today, but they actually represent a shrinking portion of the total labor force. Here's an example. In 1910, workers in construction, mining, and manufacturing represented roughly 46% of the non-farm workforce. By 2015, that percentage... Again, workers in construction, mining, and manufacturing was down to just 14%. The service sector, by contrast, went from 38% in 1910 to 77% a century later. Now, remember, this doesn't represent the uh, non-farm, or represents only the non-farm workforce. It's important to remember that agricultural workers who toiled equally hard as factory employees comprised a substantially larger percentage of the workforce in 1900. That was roughly 41% of the total workforce. Then today, 2%. Wow. So interesting background on Labor Day. Um, Anthony Gill asks, is it time to rethink, maybe rename Labor Day? In fact, he floats the idea, what about Capitalism Day? I know there were some people that have some real problems with that. Ah, we hate capitalism. (laughs) Okay, how about Market Freedom Day? We could celebrate all those who participate in the process of the market, from the humblest of bartenders to the wealthiest of bankers. We all matter in what we do for each other. It's the most inclusive way to celebrate the dignity of those who peacefully and productively use their talents to the benefit of others. So there's one thought. And then there's another one here. This is from John Tamney, who actually suggests maybe what we need to have instead of Labor Day is Free Enterprise Day. In fact, he's like, you know, capital and capitalist are kind of dirty words with just too many people. We already have enough holidays. So he says, I don't know if we need to reduce economic output by skipping another day of work. But with Columbus Day right around the corner, he says, I'm I'm pondering that holiday as well. It became controversial because, let's face it, Columbus can be tied to some really unpleasant things that happened soon after his discovery of the New World. He says, I get that. On the other hand, Columbus was also one of the greatest risk-takers of all time. He basically went around Europe seeking venture capital to back a crazy idea that he could access spice-rich Asia in the East by heading west and save time in the process. Now, he was ridiculed by the groupthink experts of his day who told him the voyage would take far longer than he believed, that he and his crew would end up as shark food if he tried. So naturally, he asked a lot in return. If he succeeded, he would get 10% of all revenues earned henceforth from the trade route he proposed. 
plus a very cool title, Admiral of the Ocean Sea. Portugal rejected him, so did Spain, twice. He even asked the Ottomans to no avail. Finally, on the third go-around, only after he threatened to go to France, or to appeal to France, Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain finally provided the backing he needed, and the rest is, well, history. So John Tamney says, here's my crazy idea. We retain the second Monday of October as a federal holiday, but we just rename it Free Enterprise Day or Entrepreneur's Day. It could be used to remind everyone of two realities that so many people just don't seem to understand. The first is that getting rich doesn't just happen to people. It requires a willingness to take a risk. And the second is that in becoming successful, entrepreneurs create far more wealth for others than they accumulate for themselves. So our schools, for instance, could celebrate Free Enterprise Day by devoting some time to teach about the nature of risk-taking and how it benefits everyone, not just the wealthy. Students could learn all about famous entrepreneurs like Columbus or Elon Musk, Andrew Carnegie, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, but also less famous visionaries as well, like Madam C.J. Walker, Robert, wow, I don't even know how to say his name, Una Yu, <laughs> and Robert L. Johnson. These folks had shortcomings just like the rest of us but too few of us possess their vision and their courage for which they should be admired. So Free Enterprise Day might just inspire a few more. I think this is actually a a really good thought. And by the way, I'm looking here and realizing I totally misread John's name. It's not John Tamney. It is John Barry. And I apologize for uh, for that oversight. I'll have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. There always will be articles and uh, and different uh, essays that I won't have time to get to in the show itself. But I post them there for your opportunity to follow up, to read. I assume you're doing your own homework, or at least you're doing what you can to own your own worldview. And I strongly commend it. Somebody's got to see things as they are. Why not you and me? This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where we gather to engage in wrong think. Which sounds like it should be mildly subversive, right? We should be meeting in a warehouse somewhere in the dark hours of the night, probably wearing trench coats and our collars turned up and sunglasses to protect our identity. Nope, nope, nope. We're just going to be right out in the open and question some of the narratives that seem to dominate our time and hopefully arrive at our own understanding of what the world is really like and, more importantly, what we can do to affect it in a positive way. Glad you're part of the audience today, and thank you so much for being a part of our growing audience. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, also by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage and 
lifesavingfood.com. In fact, I'm just looking at the website right now, and I don't know if you have someone in your home who uh, has problems with gluten. This is a much more common problem than a lot of people think. I have a daughter who became gluten intolerant as a teenager, and for a while it really made things difficult because the vast majority of our food storage was wheat and wheat products, and basically there's a lot of gluten there. Well, you'll be happy to know lifesavingfood.com has gluten-free products. In fact, I'm looking at a 84-serving entree and breakfast bucket. This is a grab-and-go stackable bucket. It's gluten-free. Great-tasting, freeze-dried, dehydrated foods, ready in minutes. You just add water. And if you have someone who has gluten considerations, this would be a huge thing to have as part of your food storage. Check it out for yourself. If you decide to make the purchase, please use my last name as your coupon code, HYDE, H-Y-D-E. It'll save you 10% on your purchase. And again, that's lifesavingfood.com. You know, a lot of what Hollywood produces, I think, is intended to be kind of a mindless escape and a distraction from the real world. In other words, I, I don't want to sound snooty, but a lot of what Hollywood has to offer, I'm really not interested in. But once in a while something worthwhile makes it through. John Miltimore, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, says the movie Paw Patrol is surprisingly libertarian in its storyline, and especially for a kid's movie. Here's his explanation. He says, I recently took my four-year-old to see Paw Patrol, the movie. Now, he's a big fan of the TV show, and as the youngest of my three kiddos, little Beck tends to get less of Dad's time and attention than his older siblings. It was our first just-the-two-of-us movie, so I grabbed us a couple of blue slushies and a small mountain of buttered popcorn to watch this movie about a boy named Ryder who leads a crew of heroic search-and-rescue puppies in a land named Adventure Bay. Now, I think you can relate to what John says next here. He says, you know, I wasn't exactly excited to see the movie, to be honest. But he says, to my surprise, however, Paw Patrol is actually a pretty good flick. I couldn't help but notice the story has a not inconspicuous message that tells an important and timeless economic lesson. Now, people who've seen the Paw Patrol TV show likely know about Mayor Humdinger, a selfish, grasping politician always seeking to use his position as the mayor of Foggy Bottom to his own advantage. Humdinger is no different in the movie. As the mayor of Adventure City, a notable contrast to Adventure Bay, Humdinger quickly turns the metropolis into chaos by using his authority to fuel his own ego and nefarious plans. Unlike Adventure Bay, a small community where people trade and help each other through trade and voluntary action, Adventure City is run in a very top-down fashion, with Humdinger ordering people around to suit his own purposes. Now, early in the film, we learn he's capturing stray dogs and holding them in a secret shelter. See, in reality, Humdinger's really just a cat person. Worse, Humdinger, tired of the rainy weather in Adventure City, decides to improve the city by getting rid of the pesky clouds that make things so dreary. Now, it just so happens the clouds also threaten the fireworks celebration Humdinger's throwing to celebrate himself. I hear you have a weather machine that sucks up clouds. Is that true? Humdinger asks the scientist who runs the machine at a university. You're looking at it, she replies. It's a free-floating, gyroscopically balanced, remote-controlled weather containment and an analysis apparatus. We call it the cloud catcher. Now, Miltimore says Humdinger clearly has no idea how the machine works, but he sees that he can use it to solve his weather problem, despite the scientist's warning that it's a device for studying weather, not manipulating weather. 
I want all of those pesky clouds sucked up by the end of the day, Humdinger blares. The scientist reluctantly agrees to use the machine to suck out the rain clouds just for tonight when Humdinger threats to shut down the project if she doesn't comply with his order. So the machine isn't turned off after it's set in motion. Another lesson setting the stage for a cataclysmic weather event later in the movie. Fortunately for Humdinger and the people of Adventure City, there's a private team of rescue puppies led by a little boy who's able to help. With the assistance of a homeless puppy named Liberty, the Paw Patrol is able to clean up Humdinger's mess. Now, there are twists and turns along the way, of course. Chase, a German shepherd pup who serves as a police dog, loses confidence in himself and ends up in the pound after he's nabbed by a couple of Humdinger's goons. Ryder has a fallout with Chase. The pup puts out a few fires, literally and figuratively, and rescue Chase. That's the other pups rescue him. Liberty, the newcomer, gets her own wheels. But John Miltimore says, Still, I couldn't shake the feeling that the overall plot seemed like a shining Hayekin example of central planning gone wrong. In his hubris, Humdinger tries to do one thing, make the weather better, and ends up doing something very different, causing an environmental disaster. He says, also, I notice there's a lesson in public choice theory. Even children will see that Humdinger isn't acting out of some common good to improve Adventure City. No, he's mostly interested in having nice weather so it doesn't ruin his celebration. Was there ever a better example of politics without romance? To borrow a phrase from Nobel Prize winning economist James Buchanan, the pioneer of public choice theory. Now, John Miltimer says, of course, I couldn't, I also couldn't help but wonder, am I reading too much into this? I mean, Paw Patrol is a children's movie, after all. Are the show's writers intentionally or subconsciously truly exploring these ideas in their film, or am I just imagining this? He says, I'm self-aware enough to know I write for an economics organization, and humans have a knack of projecting their own insights and experiences onto art and human affairs, much like the subject staring at the ink blocks of a Rorschach test. So naturally, he says, I decided to put my theory to the test, and I started Googling. And it didn't take long to find out that others have had the sneaking suspicion that Paw Patrol has dangerous pro-freedom messages woven into its stories. One Reddit post describes Paw Patrol as a libertarian conspiracy. Maybe it was tongue-in-cheek. It's hard to tell these days. An article on Fatherly, meanwhile, blasts the rotten political core of Paw Patrol with a disapproving gusto that's both impressive and bizarre. Who is Ryder? At first glance, he's a child without history. An inventor and an engineering genius, writes Patrick A. Coleman, ruled by logic and reason, deeply individualistic, and uninterested in the opinions of the townspeople that yelp for help. Ryder controls his pack of working dogs and the town of Adventure Bay. You catch that? Ryder's a suspicious character because he's logical, deeply individualistic, and employs reason. But wait, it gets better. Ryder is, in short, a 10-year-old libertarian autocrat, the sort of boy that Ayn Rand would have tried to raise if she'd been interested in that kind of thing. Coleman continues. And then, the crescendo. On the surface, Paw Patrol is exactly as advertised, a lightly grating, exuberant half-hour of cute animals meant to teach children how to solve problems through teamwork. But look deeper, and it's a weird show about a weird pastel town where Ryder is never questioned or pushed to account for himself. The fact that none of the residents ever talk about how he and his pack of pups rose to their prominent position in the town reeks of censorship or some deeply buried shame they've allowed themselves to be under a child's thumb. So it would seem on a daily basis. 
to a catchy Skylight theme song, Ryder and his pups act out an anarcho-capitalist pageant. Wow! The boy is impressive, and not simply due to his impeccable style and gelled-up black bouffant. He surpasses Rand's John Galt, who went through university at 16 and invented an improbable engine. Ryder's command of technology and engineering prowess is undeniable. The proof is everywhere your eyes might rest. But Coleman says a dark question looms over Adventure Bay. What would happen if Ryder suddenly tired of the town's seemingly endless, petty chaos? What would happen if Ryder shrugged? Maybe the ultimate danger of Ryder is that he's duped the citizens of Adventure Bay into giving up their agency and America's children into believing that exceptional people should be allowed exceptional power, and frankly, they shouldn't. (laughs) And I love John Miltimore's response to this. He's like, okay, then. He says, after reading that description, I came home with an important lesson. Don't analyze cartoons too much. It leads to dark places. So his advice is, take the kids, get some popcorn, don't worry about it too much, just enjoy the movie, but don't be surprised if maybe you learn something along the way. I'll have a link to this article in the show notes, which you can check out for yourself at thebrianhideshow.com. Hey, consider becoming a subscriber as well. Some nice perks for uh, members. Details are there on the website. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. You know, one of my favorite things is uh, when graduation time comes around, um, there, there are a lot of people who will sit down. And I've done this myself, too. And if I were asked to speak at a graduation, here's what I here's what my message would be to the students. And some people think, well, that's really presumptuous. Um, I love exercises like that. If for no other reason, it's a great exercise to sit down and ask yourself, if I wanted to pass on what I felt was, you know, really good, worthwhile information, what would I, what would I land on? What would I say are the things that I would want people to understand? Now, I've done this with my kids, my grandkids, you know, I've, I've written letters to each of them, especially as my grandkids were, uh, you know, still in development in the womb. And I'm hoping that, you know, those things will be preserved so that someday they can look back on them. I, I'm, I'm actually a big believer in journaling. And part of it has to do with I see how intensely this connects uh, our time and, and those of us who are living right now in the moment with those who came before us. My wife, uh, fortunately, had an ancestor who uh, took very clear notes and, and journaled and, and cataloged, you know, what happened in his life. And this guy was, he was part of some pretty amazing historic stuff, particularly in the settling of southern Utah. Really remarkable stuff. He actually has some pretty key insights to a, a rather infamous event that happened there on September 11th, I think it was 1857, the Mountain Meadows Massacre. There are different versions of what went on, but his... Uh, his first-hand experience with what took place, he wasn't a participant in the massacre, but was privy to those who were, were trying to set it in motion and uh, tried to stop them, actually. And it's, it's really fascinating to get that point of view. My point is simply this. You have something worthwhile to share. You know you do. 
Don't hide it under a bushel. Jot it down. People who come after you, whether it's your kids, whether it's your grandkids, maybe it's generations down the line, they will appreciate knowing what you were thinking, what you were going through, what you learned. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to point out we're living through some pretty historic times. People are going to appreciate hearing from those who were there. Eyewitness accounts, if you will. Now, having said that, graduation things are one thing, but now with all the students returning to college campuses, that means instead of graduation speeches, it's convocation speeches. And Alexander Riley, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has some very solid advice he would like to share with the incoming classes of students. And he calls this the convocation address you will never hear delivered. Alexander Riley says schools are reconvening. Students are finally returning to the great halls of learning, albeit masked. Colleges are holding convocations to welcome a new class to begin their multi-year stay on campus. Now, convocation addresses are often delivered by the college president, traditionally a devastatingly unexciting speaker, while more lucky students get to hear wisdom disseminated by towering intellectual and moral titans who hector students about social justice, police violence, climate change, racism, and gender politics. Alexander Riley says, for a thousand reasons, I will never be invited to give such an address at such an event. If I were, though, he says, I would tell these youthful souls in remarks such as those that follow that college is the last place that will prepare you for real life. I think you're going to like his message. He says, greetings, class of 2025. Our college wanted a scintillating public intellectual to deliver this address to you, but the speaker's fee was steep, so they asked me instead. Sorry about that. We'll try to make the best of it, though, by starting with some big questions. What can you reasonably expect from life? Many things, but not perfection. Your life will not go as planned, and you should prepare for contingencies. Now, if you pretend you can avoid disasters, they will be worse than if you prepare for them. Though they may still be quite bad even if you prepare. He says, I'm sorry, that doesn't sound cheery, but I'm just trying to help. Next question, what is life for? Many seem to think a career is the meaning of life, but they're wrong. Now, he says, don't misunderstand me. Learn a trade. Learn not to hate work if you can, but always understand that your work is the thing you do to make it possible to do other things that are more important than your career. So what are these more important things? Well, he says, a spiritual life is one thing you desperately need. Some type of tranquility with respect to your own finitude and imperfection of the world. The behavioral skills required to surround yourself with a small group of people you love and who love you more than life itself is another desperately needed thing. They are your cocoon against the hardships of the world that will fall upon your head every day. And here he says, I have some bad news. College is not set up well to help you intelligently address these two big questions or to get better at achieving spiritual and familial success. You'll get little preparation in these ivy halls for serious adversity. Many people here will also try to convince you that you should be like them, anxious, depressed people who've made their careers their entire lives and who love and are loved by almost no one. Almost nothing here will point you toward your true needs. A spiritual life and a life mate and the children that are your only immortality in this world are goals humans once did not need college convocation addresses to understand as central to life. 
It is only college professors and other similar figures in their love of revolutions and the critical thinking philosophies of which they are so uncritically enamored that made it possible for some of us to forget such basic things. Instead of these qualities, colleges offer you a vision of the examined life that is nothing more than a commitment to permanent social revolution. It will not prepare you for important things, and it will immunize immunize you against many of the qualities you need to make a good life. You cannot achieve spiritual calm or establish deep and lasting relationships with family if everything that makes you unhappy in the world is cause for revolution. This should be obvious. Alexander Riley says, One final thought, the most important. Start learning to die. Now this sounds awful, but it's the most important work you will ever do. Try to imagine it even while you are young, for it is the truest truth of your life. And learning it is a hard lesson to come by in a culture where eternal youth and the vanity that accompanies it is worshipped. He says learning to die, or learn to die because learning to live requires it. It's a hard lesson, requiring the entirety of the 70 or 80 year span we have on earth, and indeed, most of us will never learn it completely. Orient your life to this horizon and ponder, study, meditate, pray on the question of what comes when you hit that horizon. Now, go enjoy the sandwiches and punch, and good luck to you. You'll need it. I know it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I like a lot of what he is pointing out here. And and I know this is a tough sell for people. Uh, my, my wife is very much, you know, of the opinion and has, has tried to teach our kids. College is where you want to go. This is, you know, you need to get that education. You need to be prepared for whatever your career is going to be or whatever it is you're going to do with your life. I agree to a point. But I'm also uh, finding myself a little more on that uh, that free thinking side of whatever your your whatever your work is, however you keep a roof over your heads and, and uh, you know, food on the table, that is important, but it's not the most important thing you're going to do with your life. I don't want to sound too idealistic here, but um, I'm someone who has spent his life learning this lesson personally. And it's simply this. Every single one of us, I don't care how great or how humble, how talented or, you know, just uh, run of the mill, Every one of us has some unique personal purpose to which we are born. I don't know what your purpose is. I can't presume to tell you. But I can give you some advice on how to figure it out, how to tap into it. And I will tell you this. Once you have tapped into that sense of purpose, that sense of personal mission, if you will, everything in life changes for the better. Everything takes on more depth, more meaning, deeper gratitude. Does that sound worthwhile? Does that sound like something worth considering? Okay, here's the secret. It starts with humbling yourself enough to ask your creator, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? And then listening for that answer. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick message here about the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George. 
It's such an incredible real estate market right now in Utah. But if you're one of the people who is uh, looking to purchase a home or maybe uh, looking to refinance your existing loan from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the stability, the clout, and the experience to get you the loan you need without delay. That's pretty pretty important, especially in a time where uh, the, the competition is so fierce. For whatever inventory is out there on the real estate market, you you can't afford to dilly-dally around. Contact the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage by calling 435-703-4522. Their office is at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. But listen, if you're buying a home anywhere in the state of Utah, these are folks you should talk to. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. All right, so I was talking a little bit uh, as we ended the last segment about uh, finding that sense of purpose. And I know this makes people uncomfortable. And I, I, if I can be very honest with you, it made me uncomfortable the first time someone introduced me to that idea. In fact, it didn't make me just uncomfortable. It actually it made me angry because I realized at that point that there was more to life than, uh, or there was, a, there was a better way to approach life than I was currently doing. And, and I want you to understand at the time I was actually doing pretty well, making probably the best money I've made in my life and enjoying what uh, could be counted as success and building a large, loyal radio audience. And um, things were going quite well. No complaints. You know, it was it was going very well. But a friend introduced me to the idea that, you know, maybe we're born to do something more than simply work, buy things and then, you know, retire and run out the clock, you know, until you die. And it made me angry because I realized he was right. And I realized I had to step up and that meant I had to change. And, and, and it did. It set in motion changes that I could not have anticipated. Many of them uncomfortable. That's part of the process of change. But I'm so grateful. I mean, it's been, it's been about 20 years since this happened. It put me on a path that I don't know that I would have chosen had I not known about it, I don't think I would have naturally found my way there. I wanted, you know, the comfortable, safe, easy, conservative path where there's very little risk. And it requires risk to be able to live up to your potential. But I'm very, very grateful for that discomfort and thankful for a friend who, who pointed this out. And even though I was mad at him for a little while because I knew I couldn't close my eyes again to it, it was a good thing. So if you're if you're mad at me, look, I understand. I accept it. <laughs> it's you know my, not my goal, but uh, but I understand if this kind of thing puts you in in kind of an uncomfortable position. But like it or not, you and I are living through some remarkable, likely historic times. I don't think any of us aspire to be standing here at this crossroad, but here we are. I've got an essay here from J. B. Shirk. It's a very powerful message for anybody who recognizes the significance of what we are facing. And as an added bonus, he also tells us uh, how to tell what government fears most. So that was kind of that was kind of the the bait for me to click on the article. He starts with a quote from Frodo. Yes, from Lord of the Rings. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Now, J.B. Shirk says, I am of the opinion that we are all part of one of the great epical shifts in human history and that what we fight to secure today will reverberate through society for generations. 
He says, we did not ask for this moment. Most of us, in fact, have hoped that by quietly enduring the hardships that come our way, our toleration of what is intolerable would somehow be rewarded with comfort and peace. As with all turning points in human history, however, the desire to ignore obvious trespasses in order to forestall conflict has had the effect of encouraging further harm until conflict is all but certain. Like a garden hose tied into a knot, societal pressure has been steadily building and everybody senses that it could pop at any time. As with all revolutionary movements, or moments rather, at the root of this conflict is an idea. And in one word, that idea is freedom. Now, governments have been manipulating this word for as long as humans have been demanding it. Lenin seized power in Russia while claiming to free the, prote- prote- uh, the proletariat masses. In FDR's famous Four Freedoms State of the Union Address in 1941, the president defended freedom of speech and freedom of religion, but also insisted that it is the government's responsibility to ensure freedom from want and freedom from fear. In the days since the United States Supreme Court refrained from interfering with the state of Texas's decision to limit abortion after the detection of a baby's heartbeat, pro-abortion Americans have insisted that a woman's freedom to terminate her pregnancy up to the moment of childbirth supersedes the baby's freedom to live. So when I say this revolutionary moment is, at its heart, a conflict over freedom, He says, I must be clear that it is an ideological battle pitting human life and free will against the commands of collectivist authorities, namely that individual liberty is a moral imperative being threatened by an increasingly all-powerful globalized government run by a small handful of decision makers in the name of the greater good. Now, J.B. Shirk says every interaction between government and citizen today tests how far individual liberty may be diminished before the public pushes back. Should authorities have had the power to close businesses and prohibit public gatherings in the name of health? What if the risk to the public's health is less than 1%? What if the risk is merely one one one-hundredth of 1%? If government can interfere with liberty whenever there is any degree of risk, can there be any degree of liberty? If government can make you afraid of something, imaginary or not, May it then control your life completely in order to guarantee FDR's freedom from fear? Does depending on government to ensure freedom from fear not incentivize government to invent new fears that only additional government powers can vanquish? Does this not subsidize fear with taxpayer dollars and guarantee that government will always strive to make citizens afraid? Can it really be true that individual liberty should be allowed to exist only when there is nothing that can hurt us? Isn't that what a master might tell his slaves? If truth exists independently from governmental decree, and science is a process in search of truth, then why are governments working with Google, Facebook, and Twitter to censor scientific debates? If truth is so fragile that it will not survive false attacks... That's a good question. Is science so dependent on official edicts that it must be regulated and practiced only by a small priestly caste? If scientific consensus depends on government creating a monopoly over information, does this mean that the truth is whatever the government deems it to be? Since government is incentivized to invest in fear, is it likely that government will ever declare a truth that isn't also scary? If government power grows by monopolizing information and weaponizing fear, then isn't the greatest threat to the government an independent citizen unafraid of thinking for himself? 
if not true, than that every single person is capable of destroying the illusion of total government control. Is it not true that leaders can rise from anywhere, whether at local school board meetings and football stadiums or even from the spontaneous testimonials during Red Lobster dinners? Is it difficult to imagine freedom speakeasies popping up wherever freedom is outlawed? Is it not true that there are more citizens than jail cells and that when enough people choose to disobey unjust laws, government must choose either to change the laws or lose its powers? Is it not true that every fight for freedom throughout history has started with a spark that catches fire? Is it also not true that sometimes the worst brush fires spread and things get unbearably hot for a while, but then great growth rebounds after that? He says, I'm of the firm opinion that not only does the course of history refuse to follow some linear arrangement directed or dictated by those in positions of power, but that it also often ricochets against the most concentrated efforts of those attempting to direct its currents. And during these moments of self-inflicted backfire, history is up for grabs. Great leaders rise and even greater ideas emerge. For Americans, the propositions that set our ancestors free beckon once again. As President Calvin Coolidge observed in his 1926 timeless speech celebrating the 150th anniversary of America, some truths are set in stone. If all men are created equal, that is final. If they are endowed with inalienable rights, that is final. If governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, that is final. No advance, no progress can be made beyond these propositions. If anyone wishes to deny their truth or their soundness, the only direction in which he can proceed historically is not forward, but backward toward the time when there was no equality, no rights of the individual, no rule of the people. What a great quote. So we didn't ask for this moment, but we should have the strength of character to see it for what it is, and then we have the power to determine what happens next. But all we have to do is decide that freedom is worth defending with the time that is given to us. Again, these are the words of J.B. Shirk. I have a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. That's an essay you may want to share with some of the people you trust. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, final segment. Got to make this one count. I have to admit, I felt just this little momentary tinge of guilt as I saw this article yesterday. This popped up on lourockwell.com, and I'm going to take a moment here to kind of uh, shamelessly shill for lourockwell.com. This has been one of my go-to resources, and I recommend it as one of my resources for wrong thinkers. It is a daily News aggregation site, Uh, they do a weekend edition which covers Saturday and Sunday, but six days a week, you're getting fresh content from a wide, wide variety of different writers on different topics. Um, It's it's very good stuff. It's anti-state, it's anti-war, it's pro-market, very pro-freedom. They have a couple of different blogs that accompany it. Political Theater is one of them, the LouRockwell.com blog. Great information. One of those was posted yesterday. It's an article by Jeff Thomas, who uh, blogs on internationalman.com. The title, If It Gets Bad, I'll Go to Idaho. Now, right there, I kind of felt like, uh uh-oh, 
um, because uh, my family and I made the move to Idaho about three months ago. And, you know, it, I, I have to confess, this was not the idea of things are getting real bad here and it's time for us to move somewhere that's free. You know, we we have family in Idaho. Uh, my mom is is getting up there in years. Becky's parents are, are getting um, older. And basically, it was a time to be closer to family. And, uh, you know, I'm only going to share this with you because there's just a, just a handful of us here. But um, it was also a product of, uh, I believe... You know, being guided by God, you know, that you're needed here now. And that's that's something that we responded to. And I, I only mention this, this. I hope this doesn't sound like I'm bragging. I only mention it because we've been blessed in every way for acting on that uh, impression that it was time for us to, to return to Idaho. And I want you to understand that when we came up here, there was uh, there was a lot of uncertainty. In fact, uh, I'm I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to share a few things with you that that uh, I've I've kept pretty close to the chest here. But my wife had a very solid, very fulfilling job with the best school district in the state of Utah. I mean, really, they very well run district, very good in terms of their benefits and compensation. They loved her. They treated her like royalty, and to give that up was tough, but not as tough as trying to find somewhere to live because the the real estate market in Idaho is absolutely as crazy as it is in Utah and other parts of the Intermountain West. The, the competition is fierce. One of the hardest things is finding a place to rent, and we were extremely blessed to be able to not only find a place but find a perfect little home that just absolutely fit what we needed. So on with the article here. If it gets bad, I'll go to Idaho. Jeff Thomas says, in the 1930s, the farm population in the U.S. was nearly 25% of the total, and it was quite common for farmers to borrow from the bank using their farms as collateral in the expectation that the proceeds from their annual crop would pay off the note each year. But in 1929, there was a crash in the stock market, lowering the sale price of crops significantly. That, and coincidental droughts throughout the farm belt, resulted in a large percentage of 30 million farmers failing to meet their payments. They lost their farms. Worse, they could not turn to another line of work as layoffs were taking place in all industries as a result of the Great Depression, which followed the crash. But it was said that in California, there was year-round good weather and the orange groves were full of fruit needing to be picked. If only the Okies could get there, they'd be all right. And of course, as most Americans know, this ended in a mass migration. Some 7,000 Okies flooded into California every month. Now, not surprisingly... Californians found they had to deal with overwhelming numbers of people with limited skills, all of whom were broke. They were everywhere, and in a very short time, authorities were called in to keep them out. Of course, in any situation in which large numbers of starving people are pitted against armed authorities, the situation doesn't end well. In looking back at this period, he says it's important to remember that in mid-1929, warnings had been offered that a market crash was in the making, and that the U.S. would soon find itself in an economic crisis. In spite of these warnings, the great majority of people said, if it happens, I'll deal with it when the time comes. Unfortunately, if people are to escape becoming casualties of an economic crisis, they must make plans and implement them in advance of the crisis. And so nearly 90 years later, we find ourselves in a similar situation. A market crash is in the making, 
the U.S. and many other countries will soon find itself in an economic crisis. And just as in 1929, the bankers and the media are claiming the economy's never been healthier and that it's foolish to worry. Now, this is being said even as larger players are quietly exiting the market. So Jeff Thomas says, increasingly, I'm asked for consultations by people who say, I understand a crisis is coming. What can I do about it? And he says, well, in fact, the answer is pretty straightforward. But that doesn't mean it will be painless. Indeed, it requires a major change for most people, often the greatest change in their lifetimes. Listen to these recommendations. He tells those who ask him, what can I do about this upcoming crisis? And he says, if you live in a jurisdiction that will be impacted in a major way, liquidate whatever assets you can. Next, remove all wealth except for three months of expense money from any banking institutions within that jurisdiction. Remove all the proceeds from that jurisdiction to one that's less likely to be impacted. If the proceeds are sufficient that they can be divided into multiple safer jurisdictions, so much the better. Next, he says, convert the proceeds into forms that are difficult for your home jurisdiction to confiscate. This would be things like real estate, precious metals, and some cash as expense money. He then says, store all precious metals and cash in a non-banking institution in that jurisdiction. And purchase or rent a home in a jurisdiction that's likely to be, that's unlikely to be negatively impacted and obtain the right to reside there, should you choose to move there at short notice. Yeah, none of that's easy. And he says, unfortunately, in the great majority of cases in which I've asked, I've described this as a crisis insurance policy, the individual asking for the advice views the policy as overwhelming. If he's an American, as many of them are, he often says, well, if it gets that bad, I'll just go to Idaho. Well, unfortunately, this solution is flippant and ill-advised. Jeff Thomas says, since we have no crystal ball, our best bet is to turn to history. If we're to gauge the viability of current solutions, we may ask ourselves, how did this play out in previous similar situations? Now, this almost always forces us to be honest with ourselves, to abandon half-baked or solutions and do the harder work of developing a real solution. So in light of the Oki history of the 30s, he says it's safe to say that if an American were to plan to just go to Idaho this time around, we can anticipate this is what he would find. Like the Okies, he would already have experienced the crash and have lost whatever wealth he had, however large or small, and was now in a rather desperate situation. Unlike the Okies, he would have better roads to travel on and the family SUV would be a better moving van than the Model A Ford of the 1930s. Once the decision was reached to actually go to Idaho, countless others would already have hit the road and an exodus would be underway. Now, it's likely that in today's world, some states would declare an emergency and disallow travel over their roads. Others might charge a fee to pass through, as state governments would also be in financial crisis and would need the money. You know, for the last 10 years, he says, police departments have been encouraged by the federal government to make up for their budget shortfalls by relying on civil asset forfeiture. So the confiscation of possessions, including money, of those traveling the highways would be likely to increase dramatically during an economic crisis. It also would not be at all unlikely that gangs of disenfranchised people would take to the roads to prey on travelers. Once arrived in Idaho, the migrants would find that that such a flood of people was quite unwelcome to those who'd been wise enough to establish themselves years in advance. And it wouldn't be at all surprising to find that floods of newcomers would be met with force, both by the authorities and the citizens, as occurred in the 1930s. 
In other words, the odds that I'll just go to Idaho might be a workable solution to a crisis would be unlikely in the extreme. As stated above, he says, if people are to escape becoming casualties of an economic crisis, they must make plans and implement them in advance of the crisis. Any after-the-fact solution would be just a pipe dream. I'll have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Now, I'm not going to try and pretend that, you know, Idaho's full now that I'm here, now that I got mine, the rest of you, go find your own state. I'm happy to tell you there is opportunity and there is space for plenty. In fact, I'm telling my closest friends, I'm saving a space for you here. It really is a beautiful state, but there is no doubt there is a massive influx of people coming to Idaho, coming to Montana, coming to Utah, Wyoming. I can't tell you that uh, moving here is the right thing to do. But for some people, it may be. If it was the right thing to do, how would you know? How would your moral compass know to point you in that direction? Okay, just a few of the thoughts that you may want to consider when you find yourself with some quiet time on your hands. This is The Brian Hyde Show.